after a special Friday episode last week. It is great to be back on our normal schedule. Happy Thursday. I'm your host, Lauren Evans. And with me today is my lovely co-host, Virginia Allen. Hey, Lauren. And welcome to Problematic Women. Virginia, do you know what month it is? Yes, Lauren, it is Women's History Month. That's right. Happy Women's History Month, all my problematic women out there. March is going to be a fun month for us as we celebrate problematic women throughout history. But first, let's discuss what Women's History Month really is. So Women's History Month was originally just one day, International Women's Day, which started in 1911. From there, the celebration of women became a week. And then in 1987, Congress made March our month. This month is dedicated to recognizing the many contributions women have made throughout history and taking the time to highlight female success. I love that. It wasn't just one day, and now it's a whole month. I know. They gave (laughs) us a month. You know, it really is honestly crazy to think, Lauren, that we're here in 2020, and it's the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. Women have come so far in the past 100 years, and I just love the fact that we have this time to reflect and to celebrate all us ladies. It makes me think I was really close to my great-grandmother growing up, and we we don't know her exact year of birth. She actually <laughs> changed it on her birth certificate, but it's somewhere between 1911 and 1913. And when I think back, I, I was so close to her. She went to my high school graduation. She was born without the right to vote. That's how recent this was. That's so wild. Well, we have a great show for you guys today. We'll be discussing two abortion bills that recently failed in the Senate, plus a whole lot of reality TV drama and a draw-dropping new feminist video. We also have an interview with Nikki Goser, who shares her story about seeing her husband murdered right in front of her by her stalker and what could have been done to prevent his death. And as always, we'll conclude with our Problematic Woman of the Week, one that goes with this month's theme. Here we go. We always try to make sure here at Problematic Women that we're giving you all the news that you really want to hear. And of course, one of those issues that we know you all are are very interested in is news around abortion and the topic of life. Last week, two pieces of pro-life legislation were considered by the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that the Senate would vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivor Protection Act and the pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act. The Born Alive Act does not limit access to abortion in any way. Rather, it seeks to protect the lives of babies who survive abortion attempts. If the bill passed, doctors would be required by law to give medical care to abortion survivors to the same level that they would for any other child born at the same gestational age. The second bill was the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. If this bill had passed, it would have banned abortions after 20 weeks, the time at which it is possible for an unborn child to feel pain. Medical professionals Stuart Derbyshire and John Bachman recently published a paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics, and they concluded that babies can indeed feel pain as early as 20 weeks gestation. In the introduction to their paper, Derbyshire and Bachman admit that they disagree on the issue of abortion, but that they agree that, quote, if feel pain is likely, then that has ethical and clinical significance independence of any views on the morality of abortion per se. Both bills were voted on last Tuesday in the Senate and both failed. The pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act failed with a vote of 53 to 44, 
Democrat Senators Bob Casey of Pennsylvania and Joe Manchin of West Virginia voted for the bill, while Republicans Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska voted against it. The Born Alive Abortion Survivor Protection Act had a vote of 56 to 41. All Republicans voted in support of this bill, plus Democrats Manchin, Casey and Doug Jones of Alabama. Lauren, both of these votes are really interesting. And I I think we knew going into this that, you know, it was unlikely for, you know, really any Democrats, even maybe some Republicans to get on board with limiting abortion at 20 weeks. But it really is tragic to think that not everyone in the Senate was able to get on board with saying a child that survives an abortion uh, should not receive medical care. What are your thoughts on this? When Roe v. Wade was ruled on, right? The left said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And I think this is just showing how far they've really come from this, saying that if a baby survives abortion, that we can't get them the medical care that they need. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with my niece, who was actually born two weeks early. Her due date was just, you know, at the end of February. And she's so little and she's so tiny. And to think someone could look at her and say that she shouldn't have been born just because she was a little early, it's just... Uh, The mental gymnastics that these people have to play to justify their beliefs is crazy to me. It really is, because with with the, um, you know, the born alive bill, that does not restrict abortion in any way. It's it's not abortion legislation. It's simply legislation that protects an innocent human life that is here, that's alive, that comes out of the womb breathing and just needs some support like any preemie baby would, you know, with a breathing machine and so on and so forth. So really tragic. Uh, Of course, we will continue to keep you all updated on this type of legislation. um, And hopefully one day very soon we'll begin to see a shift in our nation and begin to really see that life, whether it is wanted or unwanted, is still life. So our next topic is a little more lighthearted And I've brought it up many times on the show. I love reality TV. I love a good guilty pleasure show. In Virginia, I have a new favorite. Lauren, what is it? Love is Blind on Netflix. (laughs) Have you watched it yet? All right. So confession. I never binge watch TV shows. Like I almost have like a moral principle against doing it. (laughs) But we were at CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference, over the weekend. We we worked on Saturday. I was really tired. Oh, my gosh. She was so tired. I was like, Virginia, you should go home. She's like, no, I'm okay. I was like, Virginia, please. <laughs> like I was literally driving. It was like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I was driving home. Like, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> so I got home. I took a nap, and then I was like, "Well, I'll." I've heard good things. I'd heard you talk about the show, so it's like, I'll watch an episode and see. I proceeded to binge watch the entire thing. Now, I will say I did not watch the full episodes. So I think each episode is like an hour. There's 10 episodes. I got through the whole thing in like four and a half hours. So like fast forwarded <laughs> through. Um, all that to say, I have watched it. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, you definitely deserve the rest. And for those who haven't seen it, the premise is it's a reality show where couples get engaged without ever actually seeing one another. And how they do that is they first meet what the show calls pods, which kind of imagine like two living rooms connected by a frosted glass window. So the two people can hear one another, but they can't actually see one another. So it starts out kind of like speed dating where they all date one another really, really quickly. And then as the show progresses, they kind of have their favorites and they start really kind of seriously dating these folks. And then eventually these couples do get engaged. 
after they get engaged, they get to have kind of a first look. So there's it's very dramatic. There's two doors and it opens and they run to one another and they hug and kiss on one another. And then the rest of the show watches them go from an engaged couple until, you know, they might get married 30 days later. I won't give any spoilers of who gets married and who doesn't, but <laughs> it's really great. You should watch it. But on the second episode, one of the contestants had a really powerful moment with one of the guys that she was talking through the window. Amber told a male contestant, Barnett, about the abortion she had, saying it was the hardest thing that she's ever gone through in her life. Amber was crying, and she really struggled to get through the story. She recounted how she was in a serious relationship with a man, and she conceived a child. And he didn't take it well. He convinced her to get an abortion. She told Barnett about the depression she faced afterwards, how she struggled to get out of bed. She couldn't even eat. She told Barnett her story because she wanted to know that if they got together and they got married, if she had an unplanned pregnancy, she wouldn't want to have another abortion. Barnett appeared uncomfortable and surprised by her confession, and he actually didn't even respond to her. But I wanted to talk about it because we don't really see these moments on reality TV shows where they get real about actual things. Um, you know, we'll talk later about The Bachelor. But this is a moment of, of something really serious, and the show actually does a really great job, too, about talking in depth about their finances and what would that look like if they get together. So, Virginia, I wanted to ask you, watching the second episode, did this scene stick out to you, and how did it really affect you personally? It uh, it really kind of blew me away. I wasn't expecting it. It felt like a lot of a lot of the conversations, honestly, that they were having in the what they call the pods were, were pretty surfacy. It felt like there was kind of a lot of fluff and... I think I was so surprised for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Amber, who's, you know, the individual speaking from her own hurt and pain and life experience, like she had nothing to gain. In fact, she really had more to lose by divulging this information. But you could tell that it was coming from such a raw and real place. And I was honestly, I was really impressed that uh, that the show decided to include it because I think that there are so many women who can look at Amber's story and and just relate and say, yeah, I've been there. I've walked that road. I've experienced that hurt. I've experienced not being able to get out of bed because of the trauma of abortion. It truly was just a really raw moment. Uh, I'm a really sympathetic crier, so I found myself crying with Amber. And I, yeah, I was just really blown away and really pleased to see that they were brave enough to include her honest and real story. And Amber was kind of one of the more tougher female contestants. One of the most notable moments of the show was kind of, they really glazed over it, but they're all at a party and she just kind of pops a beer with her elbow. Oh, I totally <laughs> yeah. missed that. It was really great. <laughs> oh, that's but, yeah. funny. So uh, I think she was like a helicopter pilot. I mean, it was just like, she's not like this mushy gushy person. And this was like a real moment that she wanted to share with someone she could potentially end up marrying. Yeah. No, I mean, I think when you looked at all of the contestants, I think the last one on the list for who's going to have, you know, a total breakdown, you know, in the pod and really start weeping and crying over something from their past, Amber would have been like last on your list because she was just so tough. The guys would joke about like, oh, if I don't choose Amber, (laughs) she's going to beat me up. Like they knew this was a legit strong woman but still someone that had suffered this hurt and this pain and was very real to them. So, Virginia, I want to talk about the concept of the show. They meet one another and they want to find out, is love blind? Does do looks matter? What do you think of this and would you ever do it? So I thought about it. <laughs> I've mailed in my application okay. already. But no. 
Um, so I do like the concept. I think that the idea of getting to know someone on more of just, you know, a, a, a personal kind of emotional level before your, you know, your mind is able to make those really quick judgments about like, oh, I wish he was taller or I wish he was blonde or or whatever. Like I can see the value of that. I think uh, for, for me personally, why I wouldn't ever want to go on a show like this is because not so much that I wouldn't want to like blind date someone through a wall, but I wouldn't want the entire world watching <laughs> me do it. <laughs> You want a little bit of privacy in my dating life. But yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to give any spoilers. Uh, the experiment was somewhat successful. successful. Yeah, I would say so. But, you know, also five, ten years down the road, we'll see if it's <laughs> actually... Five, six months down the road. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually successful. But definitely an interesting concept and a very entertaining one. Well, I think one thing that was really interesting is that red flags in the pods really did turn out to be red flags in their actual relationships. Yeah. So even starting really early, you could see what was going to happen farther down the line. Yeah, no, I feel like you could call some things like as a viewer, you kind of watch it unfold and you're like, oh, yep, I saw that coming or I saw that coming. There are definitely some surprises. But yeah, you're right. I think the the things that people were questioning early on, it's like, Go with your gut. Like, if you think that's a problem when you can't see them, it's going to still be a problem when you can. Well, the series on Netflix, the whole kind of dating into the the weddings is up. But today, March 5th, the reunion is out. And you can bet that tonight at 9 o'clock, I will be on my couch watching that reunion special. Wow. I didn't know that was coming out tonight, Laura. Oh, I definitely <laughs> It's been on my calendar. All right. I'm going to have to watch that. Okay. Let's take a quick break. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. I know you might find yourself overwhelmed, as I often am. So if you're looking for a great way to stay up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. All right, now for another reality TV favorite. The Bachelor. Now, Lauren and I don't actually watch the show, so we've brought in Michaela, the Heritage Foundation multimedia intern, to give us the rundown on all of the recent drama. Hi, Virginia. You know, when I thought about my first time coming on the show, I did not expect to be talking about The Bachelor. (laughs) It's a great way to start, jumping right into the deep end of drama. So I promise I'm back. I'll talk about something a little more important next time. (laughs) Perfect. We'll plan on that. All right. So this season of The Bachelor has been horribly dramatic, full of The Bachelor Peter making poor decisions and a whole lot of catty girls. But recently, during the hometown dates, we got a big surprise. One of the contestants, Madison, who has been a fan favorite since the very beginning, shared with the camera that she is saving herself for marriage. In the episode prior, she told Peter how important her faith is to her and how she wants to marry a man like her father, who will be a strong, faithful leader to their family. Peter, who is clearly not a very religious guy, stumbled through a sentence basically saying, yeah, sure, I can do that. During the final four, Madison brought Peter home to meet her family, and her mom asked her the big question, Have you told him yet? Madison was very nervous to tell Peter she was saving herself and finally did after making it to the final three, which is called the Fantasy Suite episode, and we can all guess what happens there. Basically, Madison gave Peter an ultimatum saying, I'm saving myself for marriage. These are my values. And if you sleep with the other women, I'm leaving the show. I don't think anybody was surprised to see this season have a storyline like this. 
Two seasons back, when Colton was The Bachelor, the entire season consisted of virgin jokes that got old very quickly. We also saw a similar storyline between Luke P. and Hannah last season when Luke gave Hannah a similar ultimatum. So this isn't the first time we are seeing the show play into this. Well, last Monday night, Peter told Madison that even after she asked him not to, he still did have sex with the other two final contestants. Madison left her date with Peter very upset, but still came to the rose ceremony Monday. And although hesitant, she accepted Peter's rose and will be moving on to the final two. Wow. So much drama. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So I have some questions. (laughs) So, you know, as I said, I don't watch the show. But so there's this girl, Madison. She's a virgin. And she told The Bachelor, Peter, I'm essentially I'm going to drop out. I'm going to walk away if you sleep with these two other contestants. Well, he did. And she didn't follow up on her word. And she stayed anyway. Do you think she should have actually gone home? Should she have left? Yeah, I think she should have left. She was so strong and confident when she spoke to Peter about this issue. And she told him, she said, these are the standards I hold myself to. And she was very respectful about it. And she said, I know you've made different choices, but this is what I want in my life. And I would appreciate if moving forward, you can do this for me. And he blatantly disregarded her request of him. And I think that it would have showed a lot to Peter and to all of America watching that someone can have these beliefs and stick to their word. And I think it would have been really, really powerful to see her leave the show and say, you clearly don't respect me and can't be this faithful leader for me. So I'm going to go find someone who can be. Yeah, I think it's a little bit sad. Like, it just doesn't look good on anyone to kind of say one thing and then do something else. Uh, And certainly, I think, on an issue that is as weighty as, you know, saving yourself for marriage and virginity and the things that you say around that, you obviously want to be true to the standards that you're setting for other people uh, and for yourself. But do you think that the way that, you know, The Bachelor and other types of shows like these really sensationalizes virginity, do you find that disrespectful? I think it's horrible. I think these are personal choices that someone has made for themselves. And I think for the show to use this as a big, jaw-dropping, dramatic storyline is completely disrespectful. And I think that can be very hurtful to some people watching at home who have similar values and comparing that to some of the other drama on the show that's actually bad and actually crazy. It's just they're not on the same level. And that's a personal choice that shouldn't be used for views. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, it is. It's totally crazy. You're right. You know, this is someone's personal life. It's it's incredibly personal. And if they're making that decision, you know, society should recognize that's a hard choice to make to wait to save yourself. That's not easy. And when people make that choice because of, you know, their own personal beliefs, because of their faith, uh, because of things that they've seen in their own life, that takes real courage. So, I mean, why why do you think that reality TV, uh, you know, takes takes something like this and acts like somebody being faithful and saving themselves for marriage is just the craziest idea in the world? Well, reality TV is all about drama, and most of the people we see on reality TV shows are a little out there. They're usually not normal. I don't think anyone would want to watch a TV show about my life (laughs) because I think I'm a pretty normal person. It might not be that exciting, but most of the people on these shows live these crazy lives. They're characters, so somebody coming on the show and having strong morals, having a faith growing up in a stable, normal family, that's almost the abnormal situation on these shows, so they like to blow it up and act like, oh, wow, it's someone it's someone normal. It's a crazy thing to see in these shows, which is unfortunate because we shouldn't be looking at them as the odd man out and the wrong one. But 
that's just how it is. Yeah, yeah. Michaela, thank you so much for coming on, catching us up on all the drama, and we will be sure to have you back on to talk about something maybe a little bit more uh, more depth. <laughs> thank you for having me, Virginia. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. What does it mean to you to be a lady? Hmm, good question, Lauren. You know, I think, <laughs> I, I feel like it's being true to who God created you to be, honestly. You know, as women, we can't be put in boxes. Some women, you know, are called to work in the big city and pursue a, you know, a high power career and be a CEO. And others are called to open small businesses or, you know, work in their church or raise children. Like there's so many vast different things that we're called to do. Uh, so really, it's following the path that you feel like you're called to and having integrity, having character. I think being kind, I love that line from one of the new Cinderella movies. Let's have courage and be kind. And I, I feel like that is so true, that that's something that as women, we have the privilege of doing that and doing that for others. Yeah, what, I don't know. What do you think, Lauren? I kind of think it's the counterpart to being a gentleman, where it's, it's more about having respect for others and having respect for yourself. And just, you know, you don't have to be this like delicate, like, oh, hi, guys. You know, I'm a, I'm a Disney princess. <laughs> you have to think about others and just really do what's best for those around you. And, you know, sometimes you do need to put yourself first and sometimes you do need to put your career first and your family first. But really being servant hearted and wanting to make a positive impact on the world. Obviously, Virginia, I think we're right. <laughs> of course. Of course. But some on the left have a different opinion, and they seem to think that being a lady has a really negative connotation to it and are taking a slightly different approach to Women's History Month than we are. I want to play a clip from Girls, Girls, Girls magazine's new video featuring Cynthia Nixon. You might know her from Sex in the City, reciting a poem called Be a Lady, they said, written by Camille Rainville. Nothing. Be less than nothing. Be a lady, they said. Remove your body hair. Bleach this, bleach that. Eradicate your scars. Cover your stretch marks. Plump your lips. Botox your wrinkles. Lift your face. Tuck your tummy. Perk up your boobs. Look natural. You're trying too hard. You look overdone. Men don't like girls who try too hard. Be a lady, they said. Wear makeup. Highlight your cheekbones. Line your lids. Fill in your brows. Lengthen your lashes. Color your lips. Powder, blush, bronze, highlight. Your hair is too short. Dye your hair, not blue. That looks unnatural. Look young. Old is ugly. Men don't like ugly. Be a lady, they said. Save yourself. Be pure. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't seen this video and you want to watch it, just take a warning that is very explicit. And by explicit, I mean there's lots of naked people and it's very provocative. The video has over 20 million views and has been reposted by Madonna and many other famous women. The video is getting a lot of praise. But Virginia, what do you think, now that we've defined lady for ourselves, what do you think of the way that Cynthia Nixon in this video defines lady? Yeah, so, I mean, really what this video is saying is, woe is me, I'm a victim, 
these are all of the impossible standards that have been put before me because I am a woman. And, you know, I do want to validate and, and give credit to the fact that, okay, yes, there, there are standards that are in place for being a woman. And sometimes, you know, those don't feel fair. And I know that many women have suffered under, you know, being name called and pressure from people in their lives to look a certain way or act a certain way. But overall, I think we need to take a step back and recognize the fact that we're not victims, that we're not oppressed, that we've come a really, really long way as women, and that we are incredibly privileged to live in America and have the freedoms that we do have as women, to get to choose what we want to wear, to have the freedom to speak out, to run for public office, to vote, all of these things. So it does a disservice to women when you have a video like this that really just highlights all of these negative stereotypes around what being a woman is. And I want to bring up that Cynthia Nixon got famous by playing a character in the show Sex and the City. It's not like she's this like spotless person. Like That show really added to a lot of the stigma that they're talking about, that women need to be skinny but also eat pizza and you know be down to earth but also wear a lot of makeup and heels. Like That show added to that. No, it really does. Well, and I think to that point, it is often women putting these standards on other women. Anytime in my own life when I have felt that judgment over my appearance or, you know, I felt like, oh, like I should be buying better makeup or like, oh, I need to be (laughs) not eating any ice cream at all. Those types of things that usually has come from other women. So I, I think there's a little bit of a lesson of, okay, let's stop pointing the finger at men and saying, this is your fault. This is your problem. You make me feel terrible. Of course, there are situations where men do these things and just want to say, like, I'm so sorry if you have experienced that as a woman. Work through those things. Find healing. Find forgiveness. But as women, we need to be encouraging and loving one another to be our best selves and stop comparing. We're, it's so easy as a woman to compare yourself to others, and that's not helpful for anyone. And guess what? I had a flight this morning. I had to leave my house by like 6 o'clock, and I did not have time to put makeup on. It is now 5 o'clock at night, and I don't think for one second I ever felt bad about <laughs> two <laughs> states, you, airport. I've never once felt bad about not wearing makeup. You're you know? my hero. <laughs> you just, sometimes you gotta look nice. Sometimes you just... Got to actually make it to work. Yep, yep. That's all you can do. <laughs> well, I thought it would be fun in response to this poem to, I don't want to say this is a poem because it's not really that fancy. Um, it's more of a list of a few of the things that women who are in my life have done. We just heard this list of all of kind of these oppressive things that women are quote unquote supposed to do. But I was like, you know, I know personally whether it's friends or family, I know a lot of women that have done some like super awesome stuff. So let me just make a quick list of some of those awesome things. So I'm going to read this. I've titled it VLA. This is a total surprise. I have no idea that <laughs> surprise, this is going to happen. Lauren. I love this. Be the only girl on the co-ed soccer team. Have a baby in law school and still graduate on time. Move to a foreign country to teach underprivileged children. Be a lady. Learn a new language in three months. Be the only female on the high school football team. Turn down the high-paying job for the job you love. Be a lady. Overcome an eating disorder with the help from loved ones. Love your husband through cancer treatments. Keep your sense of humor through three years of health issues and major surgeries. Be a lady. Get married at the age of 20. Get married at the age of 37. Save your virginity for your husband. Be a lady. Be a scientist. Get a doctorate of psychology in the 1970s. Wear red lipstick until the day you die. Be a lady. 
Graduate from Harvard. Get your concealed carry permit. Learn to drive stick shift. Be a lady. Join the military. Start a nonprofit to help orphan children. Start your own business. Be a lady. Run a marathon in your 60s. Live your best life while single. Embrace being a woman because you are a lady. Yay! Oh, I, I love that. That's so amazing. Did I make you cry, Lauren? Oh. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, I just thought, like, man, I know some really great empowered women. So I think it's important that we yeah. actually focus on the positive and where we have come from and what we have accomplished. And I'm sure for any of you listening, you could probably sit down and make a really similar list in about 10 minutes. Well, we're going to take a quick break because I can't say anything to top that. But when we're back... We will be sharing Nikki Goser's story of loss and her determination to protect the Second Amendment. She's being a lady. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Welcome back. We are joined today by Nikki Goser, gun rights advocate and author and before we get into the interview, I do want to address that we are doing a little renovation here at the Heritage <laughs> Studios. So you might hear some drilling noises. We apologize. But we just really wanted to get this interview to you today. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for being here today and for being willing to share your story with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Your book is about your husband, Ben, really. And so we wanted to start and talk about him. What was Ben like and how did you meet him? Ben was a sweetheart. He was just a happy-go-lucky, fun-loving, light-hearted person. He was always smiling. Um, he was the type of person that if a stranger came into um, the karaoke venue where I worked at, he would introduce the person around the room to all of the regulars to try and make him feel welcome. Ben was also a big brother for the Big Brothers Big Sisters organization. He was a big brother to a, a child by the name of Trent, and Trent's father um, was in prison, and his mother really wanted Trent to have a positive male role model in his life, someone that could spend time with him. And so Ben would take him, you know, go-kart riding and to the bowling alley movies. Um, Trent would come over and ride the four-wheeler at our house, or I'd cook dinner for him, and um Ben was just a remarkable person. He was a really sweet person. And when did you all get married? We actually got married on New Year's Eve. What year was that? This is 2007. 2007. Why New Year's Eve? You know, I just, I like New Year's Eve. <laughs> you like New Year's Eve. It's a date you never forget. <laughs> I love that. And it was not long after you were married that you had the worst day of your life. Can you walk us through what happened that night at the restaurant? Yes. Um, I need to kind of, I guess, give you a backstory a little bit. Okay. So um, my husband, Ben, and I, we ran a mobile karaoke business in the evenings. Now, we both had regular corporate jobs during the day, so we did this just as a side job for a little extra gas and grocery money, and it was fun. We both enjoyed it. I would run karaoke shows in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, for various karaoke jockeys, ladies that were calling in sick or they, they just didn't feel like working or <laughs> any number of reasons. And um, those venues downtown, they owned their own equipment. So I would just show up and run a karaoke show using their equipment. And I did this quite often. And there was a man that um, came in 
to the karaoke venue. And Ben and I, Ben was always with me, by the way, when I would run these shows because all of our friends were there. The regulars were there and Ben would just enjoy the evening with them and sing and have fun. And then we would drive home together after my shift. Um, A man showed up and we'd never seen him there. And at first we thought he was just a tourist because, you know, there's tons of tourists that come through in Nashville. But then he started coming in more often and we figured, well, he must live here. And um, Ben introduced him around the the venue to all of the regulars to try and make him feel welcome. And this man, I remember there was one night where he gave me a $100 tip. Now, keep in mind, when you run karaoke shows, the way you make the majority of your money is through tips. So we take around a tip jar at various points throughout the night or you have one up there by the karaoke equipment and people will tip you now usually people give you like a five dollar bill maybe they'll give you a 20 if they want to sing next and they want their name moved up the song list because they're (laughs) extremely impatient you know Um, and they've had a little maybe too much to drink and they're not thinking sometimes I would think buddy you need to save that 20 dollars for a ride home you know but um This man gave me a $100 bill, and I thought he had made a mistake. I thought, you know, he thought he pulled a 10, and he accidentally pulled a 100. So I took it back over to him, and I was like, are you sure? And he just gave me this look of accomplishment like he was sure. So, you know, I I knew it wasn't a mistake. I'm showing it to him. And so I said, well, thank you. And I just, you know, it may sound silly now, but at the time I was thinking— Obviously, he wants to sing a lot tonight, and I did. I put him up to sing, like, a lot throughout the evening. And I remember then he sent me a request on social media. At the time, it was MySpace back in those days. And um, I added him to my social media account just like I did the rest of my customers. It was a way for me to retain my customer base and let people know where I would be running shows and He started sending me messages that were normal. I mean, just customer interaction, great show, really enjoyed it, you know, can't wait to come to the next one or whatever, normal conversation. Well, then he started saying things. It started to progress in a different light. He would say things like I was attractive. And now keep in mind, when you work in a venue like that, men tell you that you are attractive and you say thank you. And you go about your business, you know, you hear it all the time. No biggie. Then his messages started to progress even more. And he started saying things like, maybe Ben is too old for you. It's okay to admit that you may have made a mistake. Don't you want to have children? You know, just Mm -hmm. inappropriate. So I showed the messages to Ben and Ben's like, Obviously, this guy's got a crush on you, you know, and he didn't think that much of it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to set this guy straight because that's not appropriate at all. Mm -hmm. So I did. I just said, look, you're fishing in the wrong lake. I'm happily married. What you're saying is not appropriate. And he sent a mess. I didn't delete him right away. I thought I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. I've had to tell men before no, and they just move on. Mm -hmm. There's other fish in the sea. But he sent a message back that was the exact opposite of what he had been saying. He was trying to break me down 
by my physical appearance. He was really just being mean and obnoxious. And so I showed that message to Ben. We both agreed he needed to be deleted and blocked. And so that's what I did. And I remember he came back in to one of the karaoke venues. And now he's not singing. He's stopped singing. He's not singing. He's just standing in the middle of the crowd. Everyone's having fun around him. And he's just standing there staring at me the whole time while I'm on the stage trying to run the show. And he had come in again and again just staring at me. Ben had told me on our way home, he said, you know, that guy, I don't ever say his name because I don't mm-hmm. want to give him notoriety. <laughs> My stalker, I guess, walked up to Ben and said, hey, Ben, how's it going? Like nothing had ever happened. He hadn't sent me these strange, you know, inappropriate messages. And Ben just said, look, I read the messages that you sent my wife, and I read what you had to say about me, and you're scaring her. Please leave my wife alone. And he said, what? Is she mad at me? I swear, it wasn't me. I've got a crazy ex-girlfriend who knows how to hack into my account. It was her. It wasn't me. And, of course, Ben did not believe this phony explanation. Ben's just like, okay, dude, whatever. You know, (laughs) just, just leave her alone. And Ben turned around and joined the rest of our friends, and this man left. We didn't see him again for at least a solid month. And, you know, I'm thinking it's taken care of. And he shows up to this restaurant where Ben and I ran our own mobile karaoke using our equipment. This restaurant was a good 30, 35-minute drive away from downtown Nashville where this man normally went for karaoke. Ben's already asked him to leave me alone. I've deleted him. I've blocked him. It's pretty clear we want nothing to do with him. And now he's here. What's he doing here? I see him and I'm like, oh, my God, this man is stalking me. At Mm -hmm. that point, I realized this is stalking. He's not just a dedicated karaoke customer. He doesn't have just a simple crush on me. This guy is stalking me. And so I turned to Ben and I said, honey, that man is here, the one that sent me the strange messages. And he said, yeah, he looked up and saw him. And I said, I don't feel comfortable at all. I'm going to ask management to remove him. And Ben said, okay, babe, do whatever you need to do. And so I went to get management. And um, when they confronted him, he had walked around behind Ben at the point that they confronted him. And he had gone to the restroom before and he came back out and he's standing behind Ben. Ben's now at the karaoke equipment because I'm not there anymore to run the show, so Ben's running it. Ben's busy on the computer typing in songs. And this man is just loitering behind him. He's acting anxious. He's looking all around the restaurant. I assume he's looking for me. I had walked the manager through the back kitchen up against a side brick wall where I could see out into the dining room, but he wouldn't be able to see me. And something just told me, don't get involved. You've got no way to protect yourself. You don't know what he's capable of. Obviously, I'm concerned. I tell the manager, please get him out of here. He's stalking me. Here's what he has on. And uh, when they went to confront him, I later learned during the trial that the manager said, we need to ask you to leave. And he said, why? And she said, because you're making someone here feel uncomfortable. And he said, who? And she said, I think you know who. And he said, well, I have to go to the restroom. She said, no, you've already been to the restroom. I think you need to leave now. And that's when he 
pulled a 45 caliber handgun out from under his jacket. He had it in a shoulder holster. And at this moment, he's pulling the gun, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't have my gun. And I can see the lights reflecting off of the metal slide. And he lowers the gun to Ben's head, and he fires one round and shoots Ben in the head. And Ben falls to the ground, and he stands over Ben and continues to fire six more rounds into him in front of myself and everyone in the middle of a busy restaurant. There was probably 50 people in there at the time. And, of course, you can imagine the restaurant is complete pandemonium. People are running and screaming and trying to get out. And he had very calmly put the gun back inside of his jacket and started to walk around the corner into the pool table room to leave. Like nobody would know he was the shooter. And I'm running as hard as I can to get to Ben when he turns around that corner and there's a barrier between us. I later learned that there was a United States Marine that was in the crowd that tackled that man. And a handful of other men jumped on top of him as well. They disarmed him and held him until the police came. But I will probably wonder for the rest of my life if I could have prevented that. Of course, I'll never know because I was denied a chance. I was stalked and defenseless. So I've taken all of this grief and trauma and loss, and I've tried to put all of this into a book to describe to people how gun-free zones are extremely dangerous. They make good law-abiding people helpless. They do nothing other than encourage criminals to attack because, let's face it, they know everybody in that place is helpless. So I've just done what I can to try and educate people and help them understand. Yeah. Wow. Nikki, thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. Incredibly. Um, just tragic what has happened during that time when your stalker entered the restaurant and you said you had that moment where you saw the gun come out and you thought, I don't have my gun. You were a concealed carry You had your permit. You still have it. Where was your gun and why couldn't you have it in the restaurant? My legal permitted gun that I normally carried for self-defense was locked in my vehicle in the parking lot there because the restaurant we were in, not only did they serve full meals, but they also served alcohol. And in the state of Tennessee at that time, you could not bring a gun, a legal handgun. You've got your handgun carry permit. You could not bring it into those establishments. So I followed the law and left my gun locked in my vehicle. Of course, my stalker did not have a handgun carry permit. He carried a gun illegally into a gun-free zone. Had you been drinking that night? Is there any reason why, besides just this law? I was working. And in the state of Tennessee, you cannot carry a gun anywhere. That's already, it was already the law. You cannot carry a gun anywhere and have alcohol in your system. So the only reason why you didn't have your gun on you was because of this law? The law. One thing in your book that really touched me is how God's fingerprints were on that day that you never called out of work sick ever, but that day you just felt like you wanted to spend the day with your husband and you had a conversation with him that most people don't have on a normal day. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I had never fibbed (laughs) to a boss (laughs) to spend time with my husband. I felt really awkward about that. But, you know, I woke up that morning. And I just could not shake this feeling. I was just like, you know, I don't, I really don't want to go to work today. I just want to be with Ben. And I don't know how to explain it really, but I I took the day off. Ben had been laid off from his job and he was doing various home improvement fix-up projects for friends to try and make a little extra money. So I just went with Ben that day and worked on the house that he was working on. 
ripping up old flooring, and he was installing a, a fan that day and several other things. I am so glad I fibbed that day and took the day off as a sick day because I got to spend those precious moments with my husband. So this happened over 10 years ago. Why choose now to write this book? It started out as a diary, and it was a process. It took three years to go to trial, despite the overwhelming evidence, and the entire crime was filmed on security cameras there at the restaurant. I mean, there was no question that he did it, you know, who the murderer was. So it was very frustrating waiting that long. So I would write my feelings just to deal with the grief and the trauma and the loss. Plus, I wanted to be able to remember things. I was concerned that... Because it was taking so long to go to trial, you know, I knew that I would most likely be a a witness in the trial. And I wanted to be able to remember key details. And when time passes, sometimes your memory fades. And then an acquaintance of mine, a friend, said, you know, you should really consider turning this into a book. I think that a lot of people could learn from this. So that's what I did. How have you been able to find some healing from your husband's death? I mean, was writing the book an act that helped you to find that healing in some ways recover? Yes, it was definitely healing. Um, It was tough and it was healing, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I don't really know how to explain that, but it's tough reliving those things. But if I feel like it can benefit others and make them think about their own safety, then, you know, I think it's worth it. But yeah, it was healing. You haven't just written this book. You've become a gun rights advocate, doing speeches, working on legislation. What have been some of your proudest moments? Proudest moments? Oh, I guess one of my proudest moments was when the NRA gave me the Sybil Ludington Women's Freedom Award in 2012. It's an award given to one woman in the entire nation every year. And... I was the recipient of that award for my Second Amendment advocacy work. And that was a real honor for me, that they would recognize all that I had done. That's probably one of the big ones. There have been so many great moments out of this horrible tragedy, but I just feel honored to have the opportunity to work with some really great people. And have you had any legislative achievements? Well, I don't know that I can take full credit. (laughs) I can tell you that I certainly tried to help. In the state of Tennessee, I actually worked with a Democrat. Now, keep in mind, I am very, very, very conservative. I worked with the sponsor of the restaurant carry bill in Tennessee, who was a Democrat in the Senate, Senator Doug Jackson. And he and I talked on the phone. I told him, you know, what had happened. And I think he had seen it on the news, but the news wasn't reporting that the wife of the murder victim had her handgun carry permit, but she had to leave it in the car because of the law. So when I told him, he's like, oh, my gosh, Nikki, you know, we're trying to get this bill passed, and I may need to call on you to uh, come to the Senate floor and tell your story. And so that's ultimately what happened. Um, he had me come on the Senate floor. You know, I, I, I don't know if it flipped any votes or not, but it ended up passing. And then the governor, Phil Bredesen, Democrat, he vetoed it. And then they had to have an override vote and it passed. So, Well, this is, I mean, it's such a huge debate that we've really been seeing increasingly in America. There are two very passionate sides to the to the gun rights debate. 
But gun control advocates would likely argue that, you know, it only took cops three minutes to arrive on the scene of your husband's murder. And, and that's incredibly fast. That is very fast. But I can tell you that when it's happening to yourself or your loved one, it seems like an eternity. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And directly after the shooting, as you mentioned, there were good Samaritans that yes. hopped on top of the shooter and took his gun away. But how do you think if you had had that gun in your hand, mm -hmm. how do you think the situation might have played out differently? You know, it's really hard to say. Sometimes I'm, I've definitely thought about it, but I don't know that going back mentally over and over again with the shoulda, coulda, woulda mm -hmm. scenario is healthy for me mentally. Yeah. I'd like to think that with the training that I had, I was also a range volunteer. So I would help with everything on the range when other people were um, trying to get their handgun carry permits and doing armed security guard training and that sort of thing. I would like to think that those skills that I learned would have come in handy that night. But here's the thing. I think we all make decisions based on the options that we have. And when those options are not available to us, it changes the decisions that we make. So I, that's hard to answer because those options were not available to me. So, Andrew Pollack, gun rights advocate and father of Meadow Pollock, we've interviewed him at The Daily Signal here before, wrote a very powerful intro to your book. He's the father of a Stoneman Douglas high school shooting. And he wrote, quote, if Nikki had gone to the press to denounce the Second Amendment, anti-gun activists would have flocked to her, propped her up and amplified her message. This book probably would have been published by Simon & Schuster. But when she stood in front of the press in tears and spoke out in support of the Second Amendment, the press edited her words out and she was left to fight alone. Wow. Yeah. So, Nikki, this is a tragedy that uh, so much of the media really has ignored because it, it doesn't fit into their talking points. But what is the message that you want the public to hear? I guess the message I want people to hear is I don't want people to be paranoid. I just want them to be prepared because, let's face it, nobody really thinks that something this horrible can happen to them. You know, people tend to think, oh, this is something that happens to other people. It happens to people I see on the news. Well, now I'm sitting here with you, and I am one of those people. And, um, you know, bad things happen to good people every day, and evil can show up unexpectedly. You just have to be prepared. You know, you just never know when evil is going to show up. And in your mind, what is really next in this gun rights debate? I mean, are, what, are, what are you working on now? Are, are you still involved? Um, right now, I'm just trying to educate people with some of these gun control laws that are coming up right now. I feel like the criminal justice system really failed Benjamin and I back in Nashville. So here's what happened. It was an insanity defense. Okay. And I think people just think that Insanity means, okay, they're crazy, they're nuts, they're insane. No. Insanity means you don't know right from wrong. That's it. That's, that's what it means. And this man knew right from wrong, and that was proven in the trial. But it was a bench trial. Um, the murderer insisted on having just a judge. He did not want a jury. And for whatever reason, the prosecutor, I guess, decided to go along with that. And um, the judge, his name was... Judge Seth Norman, Democrat, unfortunately, despite all of the overwhelming evidence that showed what I believe is absolute premeditation, 
Judge Seth Norman dropped it from first-degree premeditated murder to second-degree. In the state of Tennessee, that's only 15 to 25 years. This man got 23 years at 100 percent with no parole. But here's the problem. 100 percent? I've I've recently learned this. 100 percent is not really 100 percent. No. He gets to earn early release good behavior credits while he's in prison. And he can have 3.5 years knocked off his sentence for good behavior. Well, I've also recently found out that my stalker has been writing me love letters from prison hmm. for years. Wow. What he does is I had hired an attorney to represent me in my civil lawsuit against him. I had a wrongful death suit, which I won. But the lawsuit paperwork obviously was sent to him in prison, so he knew my attorney's address. He would send these letters to my attorney. When you open them up, all these letters are to me. And there were a few envelopes where he actually put my name on the outside of the envelope. And all the prison system does is stamp it. And they just say, you know, this has not been inspected. Um, we are not responsible for the contents of this letter. And um, they come out. Now, I can tell you this. At first, I was furious with the Tennessee prison system. I thought, how in the hell can a convicted murderer write their victim while they're incarcerated? And I was really mad. I was like, this is crazy. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? If it were mandated that the prison system cannot let these letters out, then I would never know about this continued threat. And I think it's important that women know, as disturbing as it is. I mean, believe me, I've had nightmares. This is very, very difficult to deal with mentally and emotionally on top of everything that I've been through. But I think it's really important that women know. So I would not want to see a mandate where these types of letters are prevented from leaving the prison. I think that women should know and women should be given the option to prosecute, you know, for stalking and harassment while this person's incarcerated. So um, I have hired attorneys and we're in the process of working on this. And hopefully I can do something about this man because I think he's extremely dangerous. He's extremely dangerous to myself, to my loved ones. And, you know, he should have gotten the death penalty, quite frankly. Um, at the very least, he should have gotten first degree. But unfortunately, he is going to walk free one day. And I'm just going to try everything I can to keep him out of society because I believe he's very, very, very dangerous. He's already proven what he's capable of. Wow, 23 years. That's that's nothing for shooting your husband in he, cold blood. Yeah, his release date is um, 10-21-2028. He was supposed to stay in until 2032, but because of the early release oh, credits. Oh, he's already earned it? Yes. Oh. Yeah, he's already earned it. He has an early release because of that. So do you fear that date? Absolutely. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. It's kind of strange. I'm terrified and I'm furious at the same time. Will you have your gun on you on that date? I usually have my gun on me all the time. <laughs> Obviously not here. I'm in D.C., so, you know. Yeah, laws are pretty strict here. <laughs> very, very strict here. But So what would you say to women who obviously, you know, they're hearing your story and they want to be able to protect themselves, but, you know, they might not have grown up around guns. They might be fearful of the idea of carrying a gun. What would you say to them? You know, there are different um, training facilities 
in just about every town in the nation. There are a lot of women out there that train other women on firearm safety and shooting skills, justifiable self-defense. Not that males are not good at training. I'm not saying that at all. But there are some females that feel a little intimidated by guys, you know, training with guns. And they might feel a little bit more comfortable learning from another female. I always encourage my friends, you know, to go get good training and and see if you can find a female firearms trainer. I tell you, I started doing my own research online as to the advice that women are given about stalking mm-hmm. and how to deal with it, you know, different women's advo- advocacy groups and stalking resource groups, etc. And one thing that really bothers me, and, and look, I think some of this advice is helpful or could be helpful. Um, they'll say things like, you might want to consider changing your name, moving, getting a new job, don't follow a routine, um, get a restraining order, which I think is just a piece of paper. Let's face it, it's not going to do anything for someone who has already murdered, who doesn't care about the laws. But one option that is generally not ever given is you might want to consider the basic human right of self-defense, your Second Amendment rights. You might want to go get training on justifiable use of force and take responsibility for your own safety, protect yourself and your loved ones. Why is this subject seen as so taboo? It's ignored. I personally think that if all the options were laid out on the table, women can decide for themselves what best course of action to take to protect themselves. But give them all the options. Absolutely. So being the devil's advocate, there are a lot of well-intentioned people on the gun control side who just don't want more guns to be around because they're worried, you know, guns do shoot people and they do harm people. What would your argument to them be? When the bad guy is the only one with a gun, guess who wins? And you could ban, try to ban all the guns in the nation, okay? Let's say that somehow we could wave a magic wand. And ban all the guns. The war on drugs hasn't worked so well, right? So I'm pretty sure that criminals, people with evil intent, can get illegal guns the same way they get illegal drugs. If they banned all guns, how long do you think it would take before guns would start making their way back into the country? 20 minutes? <laughs> at the border? I mean, what? No, not long. Yeah. Not long at all. You know? Yeah. You're, all it's going to do is disarm good law-abiding people, and then only the outlaws will have guns. This is not smart. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about your story and read your book, where can they find it? Um, My book is available on Amazon, and I believe it's going to be up on Barnes & Noble soon. I've got an audio book coming out, so that should be available really soon as well. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us and just for being willing to tell your really very powerful story. We so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. It is that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. So this month, we're going to kind of do things a little different. We are going to be highlighting some of the women who have made significant impact in the world, and for women. This week, we are highlighting, of course, Susan B. Anthony and crowning her our Problematic Woman of the Week. Susan B. Anthony was a leading activist in the women's suffrage movement and helped create a positive change for women in the U.S. As we can see, Virginia and I are able to vote. 
The National Women's History Museum provides a really good summary of Anthony's life and all of her accomplishments. I'm going to read just a portion of that history. You can visit womenshistory.org to find the full biography for Anthony and many other female leaders from history. All right, here we go. Champion of temperance, abolition, the rights of labor, and equal pay for equal work, Susan Brunell Anthony became one of the most visible leaders of the women's suffrage movement. Along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she traveled around the country delivering speeches in favor of women's suffrage. Susan B. Anthony was born on February 15, 1820 in Adams, Massachusetts. From an early age, Anthony was inspired by the Quaker belief that everyone was created equal under God. That idea guided her throughout her life. After many years of teaching, Anthony returned to her family who had moved to New York State. There, she met William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, who were friends of her father. Listening to them moved Susan to want to do more to help end slavery. She became an abolitionist activist, even though most people thought it was improper for a woman to give speeches in public. Anthony made many passionate speeches against slavery. In 1851, Anthony met Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The two women became good friends and worked together for over 50 years fighting for women's rights. They traveled the country, and Anthony gave speeches demanding that women be given the right to vote. In 1872, Anthony was arrested for voting. She was tried and fined $100 for her crime. This made many people angry and brought national attention to the suffrage movement. In 1888, she helped to merge the two largest suffrage associations into one, the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Anthony died in 1906, 14 years before women were given the right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. I had no idea that she died before the 19th Amendment was passed. I know. I didn't know that either. It's really sad. She never got to see all the hard work pay off that she had done. But we're certainly really, really thankful for everything that she did do and how all of her work paved the way for the passage of the 19th Amendment. This is just the first in our series of Problematic Women of History if you have an idea for one, please tweet us, hashtag Problematic Women, and let us know which women you think we should crown, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand-new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of the Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.